Hello, really excited what's going on. Uh, what we have today, not only is it our first service as a church, but it's also our first sermon in a series. And the name of this series is Before I Go, The Words of Jesus. And what we did and what we are doing these coming months, it's going to be May, June, July, August, and then finishing up in September, is we're looking at the words of Jesus in John chapter 14. And I'll kind of explain some of the backstory and where we get to where we're at now. But we're in John chapter 14, if you have your Bible with you. And we're just going to be looking at the first four verses. The scenario is this. At the closer Jesus got to his death, which was going to happen on Good Friday, uh, the more ominous his words became. I mean, in the beginning, he's not talking about death as much. But by the time he gets to Holy Week, he's got these ominous phrases that he's explaining to his disciples. He's got these serious things that he's talking about. I'll give you a couple examples. And it actually gets ramped up even more on Monday, Thursday, the day he's betrayed. But here's an example from that week. Um, Jesus says this, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Which, that, that sounds normal enough. He's God, and he should say the hour is coming when he's going to be glorified. But then he continues, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. Now, how would you feel like if your dad said that to you? It'd be kind of an amazing thing. You're, someone you know, someone you care about starts explaining and says, I'm, I'm about to go, essentially. And if a seed dies, they start giving this illustration about death. Later on in the upper room, this is on Holy Week as well. Jesus says, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And then again in the upper room, he says, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. Wow. One among them was going to betray him. Imagine the weight that would have put on the room. In our world, we make a point to identify who may be a bad guy. And most of the time, this is pretty obvious, especially in movies. Who here has seen Star Wars and had any confusion who the bad guys were? Yeah, like Darth Vader, that's pretty obvious. Or you watch Darth Maul in some of the later ones that came out. This is pretty clear that this is a bad person involved here. And we make kind of a point to try and guess who the bad guy is. You ever watch a Western? You watch a Western, it's like completely obvious. He's wearing all black and he has a mustache. So in my mind, like when you look back, you think, well, wouldn't the disciples just know it's Judas? Because he probably wore black and had a mustache. I mean, he had to be bad looking. But when Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, in fact, they start to wonder who this might be. They didn't immediately point the finger at Judas. They start to wonder among themselves who it might be. They start to ask, is it, is it me? Is it I, Lord? Am I, am I the one? And in fact, they get John, who wrote the section that we're talking about today, they get John to lean over to Jesus. He was sitting next to him and ask, which one is, you, which one is going to betray you? Excuse me. And Jesus explains with a dipping in bread and points out that it's going to be Judas. And it still, for some of them, wasn't totally clear. So we go from this one extreme. He has pointed out one among this small group of men who has hung out for three years is going to betray their leader. Ominous words, though, don't stop coming just after that. Verse 33, if you've got your Bible with you. He says, my children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me and where I am going, you cannot come. Again, just imagine someone you care about saying that. I'm your pastor. I just started, right? This is our first sermon. But just think if I said that. 
I'm only going to be here a little while longer. You're going to look for me. You're not going to be able to find me. Where I'm going, you can't find me. Imagine me explaining this to your kids. Are you doing this to your kids? I'm going to go where I'm going. You can't go. You're not going to find me. This would be like scary stuff. So what's the first thing that pops in your brain when that question comes up or that statement? The first thing that comes up is like, where exactly are you going? Well, that's exactly what Peter asked. And who else is going to step up and ask a question than Peter? So Peter says this, Lord, where are you going? Lord, why can't we follow you now? The very other question we're asking. And he says, I will lay down my life for you. You know, if there is ever a disciple who's like the clutch guy, isn't it Peter? Is there a disciple as you kind of look through the list that you would want on the free throw line with the game on the line? It's Peter. I mean, I don't want Thomas there. This guy doubts. I mean, he's going to be worried about everything. He's going to wonder about a shot. Uh, that's not who I want on the free throw line. The guy I want on the free throw line with the game on the line is Peter. This guy is bold. He's willing to do it. This is a guy who jumps into water. This is a guy who wants to walk on water. This is a guy who later on converts through the Holy Spirit 3,000 people in one of his first public sermons. This is the guy kicking penalty kicks, free throw line. If the disciples had like an Olympic relay team, he would be the anchor. If he wasn't way slower than John, as we find out. But, so Peter, this is their leader, the rock. says, I will lay down my life for you, talking to Jesus. And here's Jesus' response, verse 38. Will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Just wrap your brain around that just for a minute. It's one thing to have this guy who's been stealing money and things like that betray the Lord, which is pretty epic. But now you're talking about the leader of the group, the one that they would have looked up to, one of a close companion of Jesus himself. And Jesus says, you're going to deny me three times. I think sometimes to appreciate comforting news, you have to hear like the rock bottom stuff. And this is exactly what is happening to the disciples. Because primarily, what is Jesus? Or who is Jesus? If you say he's like a, a wise sage, or he's a good example, or primarily he's a motivator for me, you got it wrong. Because, because primarily, Jesus absolutely is a savior. He does other things, but primarily he is a savior. And as a savior, he had to do certain things. But he's also a shepherd. He's a shepherd to you and to me, and he's a shepherd to these men. So he sits down and explains, as a savior, he has to do certain things, which means die on the cross. So he tells them the truth. But when they're down and they're hurting, as a shepherd, a pastor of souls, he comforts them. And take a look on the screen here. Here's the first section from John 14, 14 verse 1. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. I think it could be a little bit clearer because this is a continuing thing. So he says, do not continue to let your hearts be troubled. The hearts are already troubled. And he's saying to his disciples, don't let this, it's like a, the picture is like churning water. Don't let your heart be, continue to be churned up in like water. Trust in God, trust also in me. I think there's a picture we're going to get to that will clarify some of the things we're talking about. And it's Jewish marriage traditions. There's a lot of Jewish marriage traditions. Have you ever looked this up on the internet? Just Google it sometime. Just like we have traditions for major things, we've got traditions for weddings, we've got traditions for uh, Christmas, we've got traditions for Easter, we have traditions for baptism, which usually means like a small white cake. 
we had a couple, this is a side story, but we had a couple where the whole family was baptized in Washington. It was like the coolest day ever. And they didn't even know the traditions involved with baptism. And I didn't have like a slip of paper to say, like, when you get baptized, you should have like a small white cake. They threw the best party ever. There was like 50 people at their house and they had like a bouncy house things. We're jumping on trampolines and they had like this full catered spread. It was incredible. So when you get baptized, um, that's how you should do it. But anyway, we have these traditions to mark things as special and to connect us to the past. The Jewish people are no different. They have extensive uh, marriage traditions. One of those traditions and one of those customs involving marriage may clarify this a bit. Now, here's another side note. Ultimately, we're talking about weddings 2,000 years ago. We don't know how they went. This isn't the royal wedding here that has protocol that's been handed down generation to generation. But there is some evidence of customs that involve this. This doesn't mean every wedding, but I think it makes a clear picture of what Jesus is trying to do here. And then later on, we'll get to a parable where I think it clarifies some things. But the Jewish tradition was this. When a couple got engaged, the wedding was not actually, they were engaged and they're kind of married in God's eyes. But the, the wedding is not finalized or this marriage is not finalized until the groom comes back for this special ceremony. Um, sometimes it's a week long. We hear about that. Um, you can think of an example, Mary and Joseph in the Bible. Mary gave birth to Jesus. But the relationship between Mary and Joseph was, in Scripture says, pledged to be married. So they're in that engagement phase. But what often happened is the groom wouldn't immediately finish this wedding. Instead, he would go and add on to his father's house, put on a room so that they had some place to stay. Because it wasn't just like real estate now. So he'd go put on a room, someplace to stay, and you wouldn't exactly know when he was going to return. Obviously, the bride would have a pretty good idea, don't you think? I mean, if she married a guy who has never seen a hammer in his life, it might be like two and a half years before he finishes this room. Some of you are married to guys like that. Some of, some of you guys are handy, and it still takes like two years. Obviously, if she married Ty Pennington, she'd know it'd be like one week, and he'd, she'd have a pretty awesome house with a bus involved. Or if it was in, like, Bob Vila, he gets his stuff done in 60 minutes. I mean, that's pretty impressive. So Bob Vila would have been back 60 minutes later to finish this wedding. But everybody else would have been this kind of open-ended time. And they say that they didn't know exactly when the groom was going to return. So he'd send a herald to announce his coming. And then they would kind of be waiting for the groom to be there. This is kind of the picture we have. I wouldn't recommend this today. I've got pre-marriage counseling cards that I go through with new couples or people that are thinking about getting married. And one of the cards says, to save money, we should live with our parents. I, I don't endorse that plan of view. I mean, I like biblical things. Here's, uh, this is not prescriptive. It's descriptive of what happens in the Bible. So I'm not endorsing this kind of plan, but this is what they did then. So now Jesus sits down with his disciples and says... This next verse, trust me, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I am going to prepare a place for you. This is the answer to Peter's question. Where are you going and why can't we go? Jesus says, I am going to the father to prepare a place for you. You can only imagine how this kind of echoes the conversation between this bride and groom. Because they love each other, they want to stay close to each other, it would make some sense that they just kind of hang out and they, they finish and get married immediately. But where's their future? 
the groom has to sit down and have a difficult conversation to say, for our future, I have to go. I have to get a place ready for us. And I would love to stay here now, but for our future, for our life together, I need to go, but I'm going to come back. The same picture that Jesus has, this is, in fact, how he says it. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back. To echo that or the picture that we would have had in a wedding, how many young ladies do you think after like a week or two started to wonder, I wonder if he's really coming back? Do you wonder that? I mean, he said he's going to come back, but I wonder if he really is going to come back. Like someone who's standing at the altar and like the music starts and they're like, okay, haven't seen the other person here yet. You're not supposed to see the bride and like, the bride's not there yet or the groom hasn't shown and people are like kind of scurrying around. You're trying to figure out what's going on. I bet that goes through their mind because this happens all the time in our life, doesn't it? Someone says, I'm going to do something and they don't really do it. Just so I don't throw any of you under the bus specifically, um, I'm going to steal some illustrations from movies, if you're okay with that. Has anyone seen Tron Legacy here? I never saw the original. Tron Legacy I thought was pretty decent. And I, this is, I'm going to spoil it a little bit. So I'm assuming everybody in this room who wants to see Tron Legacy has seen it. If you're totally into Tron and sci-fi, and, and I'm going to spoil it right now, I, I really, this first time ever, I give you permission to cover your ears with your Lord of the Rings cloak and for the next 30 seconds as I explain this. Okay, so Tron Legacy, the father says to the son, um, he's going to go to work and he's going to come back. Well, the father never comes back. What's interesting, this isn't the, the interesting part of it, because there's fathers that make promises every single day in our world. There's mothers that make these promises. I'm going to come back. I'm going to do this. I'm going to get off this. I'm going to stop doing this. People make promises all, the day that, all day that they break. What's interesting, though, to me, is the father ran this computer business, which has convinced me, you watch that movie, the motorcycles are cool, but I am positive I never want like the slim good body light up suit. So I never want to go into a computer game. I'm now positive of that. But what's interesting to me is the father had this business. He was handing it down to his son. Now that the son is gone, he is actually in charge. He should be the CEO of this company, but he has nothing to do with his father's company. I don't mean to spoil this, but this guy's jumping off buildings with parachutes. He's sabotaging his own company. He's um, driving motorcycles way too fast, going to live in an awesome apartment, drinking beer, and hanging out with his dog. Yeah, it sounds like the 20s for some of you. You're right. This guy's living it up, but he is doing nothing about his father's business. He's just jumping from thrill to thrill to thrill. And I wonder... As we wait for Jesus' return, have the distractions of the world kept you from going about your father's business? What I mean is, if, if we don't keep our eyes on Christ in his return, the world is going to be filled with thrill upon thrill upon thrill. And don't think for a second, if anyone says that there's no thrill involved in sin, they're totally lying to you. That's a sin right there. Right, they're, they're totally lying to you. There is a thrill that would be involved with sexual escapades. But as a Christian, we say no. There's a thrill involved with stealing, but as a believer, we say no. There's a thrill involved with looking at things you shouldn't look at, 
But as a believer, we say, I'm not going to do that. There's a thrill involved with punching someone in the nose. I mean, there's going to be a thrill involved, but as a believer, we say, we're not going to do that. Or saying a hard word, we're not going to do that. There's a thrill every time in drinking or drugs, there's going to be this immediate thrill. But you know what? How long before the, the bell of that, that rings from that immediate thrill just sort of stops? And which sin is going to consume me as I jump from thrill to thrill to thrill? Or which sin is going to consume you as you jump from thrill to thrill to thrill? And he's going to pull you away from his Savior forever so soon your eyes aren't even up in the sky and looking for his return. Instead, you're only worrying about um, returning this thrill to you. That's not always the case, though. I'm, there is another option, which is, again, from a movie. Um, has anyone seen the movie Hachi? I think that's what it was called. Uh, Hachiko was the name of a dog who, I think that's how you say it, it was the name of a dog in Tokyo. And I'll try and speed up this story if you've seen it. But essentially, this, uh, this dog met the owner who was a professor, agriculture professor in Tokyo. The professor would take the train to Tokyo, I should say, to do his job. And the dog of legend, true, would wait for his owner. Then they'd go and they'd go back to the house. And each day around the time the train came, the dog would wait. Well, the owner who Matt promised, obviously, to come back, excuse me, the owner who promised to come back one day didn't because he died. So this dog kind of looked around home, looked back, and the amazing thing is for the next nine years of this dog's life until he died, he would wait at the right time for the train station, at the train station to wait for his owner to come. And in Japan, this is a huge story. There's actually a statue in that train station. They wrote a movie about it. And starring Richard Gere, who looks Japanese. They did this movie, and this dog is legend because of the loyalty factor in Japan. Now, I think that part is pretty awesome. And wouldn't it be sweet if we had such loyalty as we waited for Jesus' return that they'd like almost build a statue about us? They said, this person is so dedicated to Jesus and his return that they're so single-minded and so focused I can't think of anything else. You would think that would be good. You look at the son in Tron and he does like every bad thing except go about his father's business. But what exactly is the dog doing? I mean, really, what is the dog doing? He's kind of just sitting and waiting. He's not really doing anything. Every day he, he sits and waits, which is loyal, but it isn't exactly going about the business. And I understand it's a dog. And I understand this is going to be a little awkward to phrase it, but do you ever think sometimes when we really dial in and, and are so devoted and so loyal to Christ in his return, it clouds and makes it difficult to be loyal to his mission? And sometimes we either look like the sun jumping from thrill to thrill to thrill while we wait for Jesus' return to just forget about it, or we're like this dog, we're waiting and, and focusing on Jesus, but we're not really doing anything else. What do you do in that situation? Remember Jesus. Remember it's Jesus who f points out that our sin really is sin, and it's Jesus who took those sins away. Remember, he's preparing for our future. Why is he leaving? He has to get things right. And part of that meant dying on a cross to pay for your sins, to set you apart, to be something different.
And when Jesus says, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you with me. He had to go. He had to leave his father. He had to leave his power behind. He had to leave the earth in death. And he had to return from the grave to announce his victory. And he had to leave one more time. And that purpose is to prepare a place for you. So what do we do while we wait? It seems like, uh, I think that's a great question. Uh, Same week, Holy Week, we don't know the exact day, but this seems to be the conversation going on. Jesus is with his disciples, and they're climbing on the Mount of Olives, and they're on way up the Mount of Olives. And as they're going, they look back at this magnificent temple built by Herod the Great, and it took like 40-some years to build this thing, and the the stones are so huge. They're like, I think, 40 feet long, and I thought 100,000 pounds. I didn't double-check that. So these massive stones, the disciple in passing mentions, like, that's a pretty awesome place. And Jesus kind of sobers the conversation by saying, not one of these stones is going to be left on the other. Whoa. And in Matthew, it lasts for two chapters. Matthew chapter 24 and 25, he explains the end of the world and what's coming. And if you have one of these red-letter Bibles, it's going to be lit up in red because Jesus goes through in detail what to expect at the end of the world. And he says there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. There's going to be famine. There's going to be hardship. There's going to be difficulty. All these things are coming before the end of the world. And then he kind of makes the point, no one knows the day or the hour. And he tells a parable. In fact, two parables. The first parable is about the parable of the ten virgins. So the virgins who wait with the oil, like I showed the kids, They wait with these lamps, waiting for the groom to return because they had no idea when the exact day or hour would come, which explains a little bit to me because as a kid, didn't you want to raise your hand in Sunday school? You're like, "Um, why didn't they have oil? And why was the shop open at midnight? And what's going on? Um, I think this clarifies a a little bit. I mean, we don't ultimately know. But the thing that this groom was coming back, they didn't know when he was going to return. If this was the only parable Jesus told when it comes to the end of the world, I think we'd want to be like Hachi the dog. I think we'd want to be singularly focused. We'd want to make sure we're prepared 100%. And I I agree with that, right? I agree. Our eyes on heaven, ready for Jesus' return. But do you know what the next parable is? It's the parable of the the talents. Um, Really, that's a form of money. So it's the parable of this rich ruler, this king, gives money out to his servants, and then he goes on this long trip. They don't know exactly when he's going to return. And when he gets back, he elevates the ones, or he takes care of the ones who had done well with the money he had given them and invested it, and he's very angry at the one who just buried it. And there's consequences that come with that. Now put these two parables side by side. The point of the first one is we don't know when Jesus is going to come back, so let's be ready. I agree with that 100%. What's the point of the second one? We don't know when Jesus is going to be back, but until he does, let's get her done, right? Let's get after it. Let's get after the Lord's business. And when you put these two together, I think it gives us a confidence. And it's not that Jesus has left us never to return. He says, I am coming back. That's a promise he's going to fulfill. He has given us his true body and true blood and communion so that we can see this is my body. This is my blood. Do this in remembrance of me and for the forgiveness of sins. That's a powerful reminder, and not only just a reminder, but it builds us up and strengthens our faith and forgives our sins. And you think about the words he said to Jesus, uh, that Jesus said to his disciples, go and make disciples 
of all nations. Get about the business of my Father while I'm gone. Go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father. Go and, and teach them to obey everything I've commanded. Go and baptize, and I will be with you always to the very end of the age. When he appears after his resurrection, he says, I am sending you. And he wants us to go about the Father's business. You know, we don't have to worry if Jesus is coming because he is. You don't have to worry how to get there because you know. You don't have to worry why Jesus left. He left to prepare a place for you. You don't have to worry about Jesus' love. He proved it in the cross. You don't have to worry if you're going to heaven because he showed it with his resurrection. We are called to go about the Father's business while he's gone, while we wait for him with both eyes towards heaven, but also honoring the mission he is entrusted with as believers. The fields are ripe and the harvest is waiting. Why don't we live this mission not only in our own life and let Jesus speak to us through his word, but let this resonate in the family that we have, God has given us and entrusted us with. But also as a church, let, us, let this mission be part of us that we said we wait for Christ and we honor Christ and we do everything we can to praise him. But we also honor the mission he's given us to go out into this world and be part of this world and transform this world through the gospel that he is entrusted with. Do not continue to let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. Trust in God, trust also in Jesus. Because in the Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, he would have told you. And if he goes to prepare a place for you, he will come back. And here's the purpose, so that you may be with him. While we wait for that glorious day, let's get about the Father's business. Amen.